Hi, and welcome to the 67th Womanthology Podcast. My name is Fiona Tatton, and I'll be your host. Womanthology is the digital magazine and professional community powered by female energy and ingenuity. We champion equal recognition and reward for everyone, sharing opportunities, ideas, and a deep pool of collective wisdom, supporting each other to be unstoppable. In this, our Women in Medicine and Health episode, I speak with Stella Vig, Surgeon and National Medical Director for Secondary Care for NHS England. Stella discusses her career as a surgeon and also the work being done by the Royal College of Surgeons, the NHS and other organisations to champion equity and inclusion for women and other underrepresented groups in surgery. A quick reminder that you sign up for the Womanthology newsletter by filling in your details on the front page of our website, that's womanthology.co.uk. You can also join our LinkedIn community by visiting linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash womanthology and find us on X, Instagram and Facebook. Welcome to the Womanthology podcast. I have Miss Stella Vig and she is a surgeon and she is also National Medical Director for Secondary Care for NHS England. Stella, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Yeah, I'm fine and it's great to catch up again, Fiona. Seems a, a long, long time ago since we last really spoke properly. It's actually been two years, so it's great to catch up with you. Today, we're going to be chatting about equity, diversity and inclusion in the mix as well. So to get us started, I'd like to get you to give us a quick recap on your background and career to date and how you got to where you are today. So I was born in North Wales and went to med school in Cardiff and then transferred up to London because I got married. My husband got a job up in London and then started my consultant post in Croydon. Gosh, back in 2004, 2005, which again seems like a lifetime away. And really have been developing my career since then. A lot of the roles in education, which I love. I love working with trainees. And then COVID really made a big difference to all of us. And in COVID, took on some more senior roles within the organisation back at Croydon. And that encouraged me to apply to some senior roles in NHS England. So I applied for the National Clinical Director for Elective Care, which I'm still doing, and had a fantastic opportunity only six, seven weeks ago, where I am now started as a National Medical Director for Secondary Care. So it's been a bit of a whirlwind over the last few months. And I suppose over the last few years, it's really interesting how people say, you know, how have you got to where you've got to? And the answer is, I'm sure it's luck because opportunities come your way. And if you say yes, it's really interesting where they take you. So my first lesson to anyone listening, so anyone asks you to do something, say yes and have a go. (laughs) There is that element of if you've got that outlook and that approach to work, then I suppose the more opportunities then that come your way as well. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think that's where I I talked in the last article, Fiona, the conversation about friendships, but also allies and people who open doors for you. And I think it both works both ways. 
you start creating a network. There are people that you help very early on in your career who are much younger than you, but, you know, they fly and, and you find that they're more senior or they're doing roles in other organizations and, and they just open doors. So I think the conversation about networking is really important. But I think my role now, because I'm reasonably senior, I think my role certainly is to see people for who they are and ensure that they're matched up with opportunities that I see coming or start to develop opportunities for them. Because I think that's really important. Yeah, because if the people in the organisation know who's rising through the ranks and potentially yeah, have that on their radar, that makes a big difference because you, in the organisation, then you feel appreciated and you feel like people are watching out for you. And I think the, the reason it, that's important, Fiona, is that you can't just see someone to know that. You have to talk to them and listen and you have to understand where they've come from, where they're going to. And actually, sometimes what stumbling blocks or, you know, locked doors have they seen that make them feel that they can't do the next step? So you so you have to talk to people. And I think the, the pastoral conversation is really important. And that's something I've got from my educational days, because it's what we do every day with trainees. And I suppose is it making a safe space where people can share everything as well. Yes, very much so. And... I think COVID's been quite interesting, Fiona. We've been hiding behind masks and doing virtual meetings and we don't see each other face to face. And I think what we've had to learn is, you know, if you're sitting next to someone having a cup of coffee in a meeting and they're just a little bit quieter or just not themselves, you can normally pick it up from their body language or the fact that they're fiddling with their phone because they're really anxious because they're waiting for a child to let them know that they're safe or all those conversations when you're on a virtual meeting you miss all those cues and I think we almost need to develop a new sixth sense which exists for the virtual world and so if you ask someone are you okay you need to really listen to their answer so that you don't miss a cue where you can offer help or support and of course the other conversation is that you know, we should be making sure that that ring goes around everyone. And, you know, we just make sure there's a conversation every day, which is, are you OK? Should we do a check in? All those conversations. But I think it's getting harder and harder, the fact that we're virtual. Yeah, I suppose it's a different type of conversation. But I suppose on the flip side of that, when you're speaking to somebody in their home environment on a virtual meeting, for example, then maybe a family member wanders into shop or one of the pets or something like that. So it's a different type of conversation but it's a case of adapting, being aware of all of those things and taking everything into account, but still providing that safe space and that support. So previously we spoke about diversity of thought in surgery and medicine more broadly. Let's just revisit that and remind ourselves why that's so important. So it's interesting. It's diversity, it's inclusion, but it's about people. So the workforce that you have needs to represent the people that you look after. The NHS is interesting. One in six of our workforce now are from a diverse background. And, you know, that's visible diverse background. That's what we write down on a piece of paper. But we talked last time, Fiona, about intersectionality. And uh, as I said before, you might look at me and think I'm a, a lady from India. But, you know, I was actually born in Wales. 
I trained in Cardiff, came to London. I've got two children. I'm a mother. I'm a surgeon. I'm a manager. You know, there are so many things that actually describe me rather than just an Asian female. And so the more diverse our community is, the more we have that richness of thought, of innovation, of ideas going forward. And they're really important. Our cultural backgrounds and how we are brought up influences the way that we think. And I find myself being brought up in England. I queue for a bus and I watch the time and I do my best not to be late. But what that also means is that I'm wedded to guidelines and rules because that's how I've been brought up. And you have to think outside of the box. You have to break down some of the guidelines in terms of putting things back together because the way that we've done things in the past may not be the way to do things in the future. So a really good example is virtual outpatients uh, or the way that we manage our outpatient service. Outpatients has been the way outpatients is for hundreds of years. And outpatients now, actually, we can do telephones, we can do videos, we can see people, we can write to people, we can do things in community, we can do things as group discussions. But actually, all of that needs diversity of thought rather than just doing things the way that we've always done them. There's also really good evidence that shows that if you've got a diverse workforce and actually a diverse leadership, that is one of the fundamentals that leads to a high performing organisation. And that's what we should be in the NHS. And that's where we're determined to be as we now go forward. So we've talked about diversity, inclusion, equity is an interesting one as well, though, isn't it? And also inequity. So I would contend that if you haven't experienced inequity, how are you ever going to fully understand what it feels like? I think gone are the days when we say that we don't understand what inequity means, Fiona. I think we all need to learn and understand what inequity means. And I think we need to be curious where we see variation. So I'll give you a few examples. Well, just let's consider the political arena We've had governments who've ensured that there have been female-only selections so that you get a 50-50 representation of MPs and in the House. And it's made a difference. And you can see that if you look at the benches now, uh, people sit in the Houses of Parliament, it is diverse. And it's diverse in gender, it's diverse in look. If we consider college examinations, whether it's surgery or elsewhere, there is differential attainment. And if you are born in this country, but are from a BAME background or white Caucasian, actually there is still differential attainment. Now we've been through the same schools, we've been through the same education system, but something is creating a difference. So there is inequity, regardless of where it's come from, inequity exists. So how do we improve that? So we need to go back to our exam. Are we ensuring that it is approachable so that we understand neurodiversity and we've got the ability to have electronic versions and paper versions that we can extend time? But I think it's even more fundamental than that, Fiona. Are we writing the questions in a language that makes sense to everyone? 
are there nuances in questions that we would see and not recognize? So have we tested it with other people? There's a, another very good example. I was w- visiting Walsall Trust. And typically we develop children's services and we talk to parents and we talk to children and we say that, you know, we've developed a children's service. Walsall have taken a completely different way of thinking. They've gone out to schools. They've asked for children who are somewhere between six and eight, who you would never normally think as stakeholders. And they've asked them formally for their opinions. So they will do a CQC style inspection. Sorry, for people that don't know, CQC, that's Care Quality Commission, isn't it? Yes. Sorry. Sorry. So they've taken children, they put them in high-vis jackets, with clipboards, and they let them roam free with the questions they think need to be answered. And they will challenge a lot of things and and consider things from the eyes of a child that we would never think about. And from the eyes of children who may not have come from affluent backgrounds. And actually they then present to the board. And that's how we start to level up because they suggested and said, well, a lot of children can't afford pajamas to come into hospital. And actually, that makes us feel really uncomfortable when we're in hospital. So they've just launched a charitable request to buy a gown or buy some pyjamas. And they've got local businesses that are now donating and supporting. But inequity covers so much that it really should make us challenge everything that we do and ensure that we all ask and view things from a different point of view. Yeah. Do you think but that ability for people to actually experience something in the moment, though? So the, the the thing that I've got in my head for some reason is, have you heard of that charity called Over the Bloody Moon? So it's the, a menopause charity and they got loads of press coverage. I was reading about it the other week and they had uh, Ian Duncan Smith in a menopause vest and they had Jeremy Vine in a menopause vest. But watching the videos was just, I don't want to say entertaining to watch, but that actual, oh my, oh, this is awful. Take it off, take it off. It's horrendous. But for for people that would never normally know, they could say they knew how that felt. But actually, until they'd worn one of those, they didn't have a clue how it felt. So I'm quite interested in creative approaches like that. To It, it just opens people's minds, doesn't it? And, and Fiona, you know... I had uh, an acoustic neuroma and needed surgery and I was uh, off work for, I can't remember, three to six months. And it wasn't unless I had been in that position as a patient that I really understood some of the nuances from a patient's point of view. Now, I'd been into hospital to have children, but I'd never been in hospital to have something major. So walking in other people's shoes and actually understanding things from their point of view we just need to create more and more opportunities to do that. And I think boards are now beginning to do that, where we've got, you know, the shadowing and the parallel lives conversation. But it is really easy otherwise to walk things through your own point of view. And in terms of your role as an educator, how does that allow you to improve the system from within, would you say? The education environment is interesting because you learn to be really inquisitive. and you also learn when to give people space. But what you do is the same as the skills that you exhibit when you're you're treating patients. Patients have to tell you 
their most secret things. They tell you about their symptoms. They tell you about things that they haven't told anyone else because that's the only way that you can make a good diagnosis by being inquisitive, creating trust, and then listening. And I think it's the same when you're educating and training because unless you know what an individual can do, needs to do, the direction they're traveling in and what baggage they bring with them, it's really difficult to be, I think, a good clinical or educational supervisor, a mentor and a friend, to be honest, with your trainees. And I think that's the same in the workplace. I think the conversation of, you know, am I a leader or am I a follower? I think all of us are just amalgamations of that. I don't think any of us lead all the time. We're constantly listening, learning, teaching, training, being taught. And so I think all the skills that you start to develop allow you to future-proof and continue to engage and learn as you develop in a more and more senior role. So we're going to talk now for a little bit about inclusion initiatives that are in place in organisations like the Royal College of Surgeons. What things are you seeing going on there at the moment? I'm really proud to see the Royal College of Surgeons and NHS England and Croydon develop more and more initiatives. So if we go to Croydon, Croydon have now got networks and the networks are great because they're like-minded people plus people who are not like-minded who come together and actually understand each other and there are all sorts of myths that exist Fiona in different networks and it's quite interesting when people actually come and chat that they realize that people are people and that's important same conversation within NHS England of course with the charters that are now in existence and equality, diversity and inclusion is important. But I think the Royal College of Surgeons has been exemplar. So a couple of years ago, we suddenly found that we had three white male senior leads, two vice presidents and the president of the College of Surgeons. And also they'd all got there by merit and they were fantastic people. And actually, if you think about intersectionality, they were completely different. The outward look for the college was three white men. And so Neil Mortensen, who was our president, did something very brave. And he commissioned a look into our ordinances, our rules, behaviours, and how we could change and do things differently. And what we have is a piece of work that is now embedded into the college to ensure that we make things uh, and we do things differently. So we've now got the Women in Surgery group has existed for a long time and has steadily increased the number of females in surgery, but we still don't have enough. We now have a Parents in Surgery group. We have an LGBTQ group. We've got student groups because, of course, becoming a surgeon and enticing people into the profession starts way before medical school and, you know, in schools. But sponsored groups who are groups that have been started by medical students for medical students because they can see a gap. 
so the uh, melanin medics is a really good example and sponsor those groups so they talk to peer groups and actually understand where the problems are but i think the one piece of work which is quite harrowing but fundamental is the the recent publication by the college of surgeons of sexual harassment in surgery and the message is very clear women are sexually harassed whether it's by banter or physically but actually there have also been reports of rape within the profession and we know that men also get sexually harassed in the workplace and it just shouldn't be the case so there is now a fundamental call for sexual charters to be agreed by all organisations, by all surgical groups, by the college itself, but also to do more. So a national implementation panel, a way of people being able to find help and counsel uh, when they're in difficulty, which has to be confidential and has to be discreet from the college so that you can phone a helpline and ask for support. And all the mechanisms exist, Fiona, in hospitals, in, in the areas that we work for, in the educational networks that we all belong to. But it's interesting that people don't trust them and don't use them in the way that we would expect. So equality and diversity, I think all of us now have a role. We have a role to call it out when we see it. We have a role to be the voice when we hear things that are not right. But I think we also need to be the hands that pull other people in the right direction and pull them up so they rise, there's, so there's no ceiling. And actually, when we talk about equity, that we may never get 50-50 female to male within the profession because people may not feel that that's right. But every person who wants to come into surgery has an opportunity to fulfil their dreams if that's what they want to do. So it seems like lots of work done, lots of work still ongoing, lots of work still to do, but very glad that we've got people like you that are really grasping this. So would, would it be all right Stella, for us to keep speaking with you about these issues because they are so important and for us to keep in touch with you about all of those things? No, absolutely. And Fiona, thank you for the, for the praise, but it's really important that one person doesn't make a difference. One person can help but you need an army. It's, it's that conversation, is it? It takes a village. It takes a village to generate the family and the, and the people that need to take life forward. But I think we're now in a different era. We're in an era where things that were allowed to happen in the past are no longer acceptable. And I think we all contribute to that. But Fiona, no, I would love to carry the conversation on. It's important. And it's a huge privilege to be asked to be on the podcast as well Fiona so thank you for inviting me as well well honestly it means such a lot so if the womanthology community want to engage with you to follow you what I'll do is I'll put all your social media handles and also those for the Royal College of Surgeons and any other links that you want me to include in the show notes as well so the listeners can look out for those the final thing to ask is what is coming up next for you, Stella? What are you looking forward to? It could be anything and everything that you want. 
Well, someone said the other day, I can't remember, was it 65 sleeps to Christmas? Oh. Um, so I am looking forward to the Christmas break. <laughs> and I've still got some holiday to take. But I think next year's going to be a really interesting year. We're going to have pressures that start to build as we go up to an election. We've got the world that feels really different at the moment with all the difficulties that they are. And there's an economic crisis. So I think all of us are going to be in a very different position next year. But what do I want for next year? I'd love to see peace. I'd love to see people feeling that they can do what they want to do. And for myself, I'm really looking forward to spending time with family and friends in a way that we've not been able to do for the last few years. Well, here's to that. And thank you to everybody in the NHS for all that you do and going over and above and just taking really good care of everybody as well. So it is very, very much appreciated. So thank you on behalf of the population. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Fiona. In this section of the show, we hear about the contributors who have shared their stories in our new witness shoe. The stories include Professor Anhara Davis is a distinguished academic and researcher at the Royal College of Pathologists. She shares why pathways into pathology careers are much broader than TV crime dramas would have you believe. Sarah Day is a teaching fellow at the National Centre of Prosthetics and Orthotics at the University of Strathclyde. Sarah shares her career journey that started in Glasgow, but has taken her around the world. And finally, we pay tribute to the late Dr Kirsty Smitten, CEO and co-founder of Metallobio. Kirsty passed away on the 4th of October 2023, aged just 29, as a result of a cardiac angiosarcoma, a rare form of heart cancer. The Women in Medicine and Health Issue and podcast are both dedicated to her memory. Do check out our website, womanthology.co.uk, to read the full stories. Sadly, that's all we have time for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do, then share the link to the show on social media and also follow the show. Your feedback is really important, so please do rate and review the show in your podcast app. Join us for the next podcast episode where we will explore careers of groundbreaking women in construction. 